Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the March scavenger hunt review in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's super califragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? Before I jump right into uh, the scavenger hunt review, uh, just a little update about me. I was in an accident at work a few days ago and have recently uh, undergone surgery on my hand. Uh, I'm in a bit of pain, I would say, but I I don't know. I, I don't know if if I'll make a full recovery, but I should be okay for for the most part uh, in time. And uh, so I'm not working for at least about a week, uh, maybe more. Uh, we'll see. So due to this, I will probably be able to watch more movies. And hopefully, this will also mean that I'll be able to record a little bit more uh, for you guys to listen to. I would enjoy that if that if that came to fruition. And uh, yeah, I I struggled. I I almost wasn't able to complete this this month's scavenger hunt uh, and watch to the last. Have, I was, you know, I'd watched the first 25 out of the 31 movies in about 14 or 15 days, and it took me the entirety of the rest of the month to watch everything else. Between Love Exposure being four hours long and My Life as a Zucchini only being in theaters the last week of the month for me here. Uh, but I, I was able to finish everything up, and uh, I'm ready to go. Uh, small aside, the two films that I watched for this month that were re rewatches, which are uh, Enough Said and The Witch, both of those will not be included in the uh, qualifications for the superlatives or the top ten. And I just want to say, like, this was a pretty damn good month, uh, as as you'll see. the The top ten, three, six are all very, very strong. Uh, this, you know, I was commenting on last month's top 10 being very good. I think this month's top 10 is even better. And I think that's a pretty substantial notion. So, without any further ado... Oh, also, I'm going to try out something a little different. Uh, so, I generally format these episodes with the top 10 and then the superlatives, but I think I'm going to do it the opposite way. Uh, for the reason, the reason being that generally when I'm talking about these, the films in the top 10, a lot of the films in the top 10 win, end up winning the majority of the superlatives, and so I think it kind of gives it away in a sense, uh, in some cases, and so hopefully this will kind of put a little bit more of a 
question mark as to what actually is going to be in the top 10. We'll see. We'll try it out. Uh, and, you know, when I listen to it, I'll kind of figure out if I like this new format or not. So, without any further ado, the March scavenger hunt superlatives. Here we go. First up is the biggest surprise. So, you know, as I said, a lot of these movies uh, were really strong. And, you know, I didn't come into this month expecting it to be so overwhelmingly highly rated. Uh, so there were a lot of sort of small candidates for biggest surprise for that very reason. And I and for the most part, uh, I ended up, uh, you know, I kind of bounced back and forth between a few films for a while. You know, A Fish Called Wanda was in there for a brief period of time. Uh, Mildred Pierce, The Mortal Storm. A lot of these movies that I thought I was going to be eh or, or just a little negative on that ended up I ended up being quite positive on. But then at the very last second, almost, well, a couple days from the last second, uh, I watched a movie that just completely, completely blew me away. And I had, and I, it was a movie that I'd been dreading watching pretty much the whole month. Uh, and that is Love Exposure. Now, it's, it's an incredibly long film, and it, you know, this is, it's from 2008, directed by uh, Sion Sono. It's the only film of his I've seen. And looking at the runtime of four hours, I was just, I, I, I just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And finally, you know, I'm, for the most part, bedridden and uh, I can't really do much without the use of my dominant hand. And so I popped this in. Uh, the night before surgery, and man, the time flew by. I fell in love with this movie pretty much from the beginning. It is so interesting and so compelling. I think the characters are beautifully drawn and scripted. The fact that this movie pretty much involves, I don't know, everything. You can, like, you know, it, it goes from one extreme to another extreme to another extreme and I just found it to be incredibly powerful and incredibly moving and it, it was just so much fun. I I, I I I can't say enough about it and you know it's gonna come up here another time or two uh, on the on the superlatives and then it's definitely in the top 10 uh, as well. So I was really impressed, and Love Exposure is far and away the biggest surprise of the month for me. Uh, biggest disappointment. Now, a lot less of a uh, race in this category. Um, you know, the like I, you know, as I said, a lot of good movies this month. So for the most part, things trended upward, and you know. The films that were sort of in the middle or below 50 for me weren't films that I thought were particularly going to be that good. You know, you've got things like Toys and Deep Blue Sea, which I didn't expect a lot out of, and I didn't get a lot out of them. And, and so, you know, I wasn't super disappointed by them. However, the one film that sort of satisfies this the most, and it's by no means a huge disappointment, 
just relatively bigger than the rest of the films I saw, uh, was Dreams, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams. Uh, and simply, you know, having Kurosawa's name attached to this film uh, gives it an am uh, some amount of pedigree and uh, uh, reputation that I don't think it quite lived up to. Now, uh, my grandfather had recommended this film to me uh, multiple times. He kept writing it up, and so I finally got around to watching it and figuring out a way to add it to a scavenger hunt. And I, you know, I didn't expect it to be, you know, stunning. I didn't expect, uh, you know, Seven Samurai or, or anything like that. But I thought it'd be good, and I, I. It's broken down into various segments with a single through line of a, a character that represents Kurosawa himself. And, but other than that, you know, nothing really gels together. And there are a lot of sequences that I found to be particularly stunning, particularly moving. You know, you've got Scorsese playing Van Gogh. Uh, you've got the, the soldiers uh, in the tunnel sequence. A lot of these images that really stick out in my head still. But as a whole, it doesn't come together for me as a film in, in a complete and concise way. I think that as individual short films, they, this could have been a, a much better movie. They, could, they would have been very much higher rated individually than they are as a whole. And so it was a little disappointing for me. You know, I, I do think... You know, I very much respect everything Kurosawa's done, but this one just didn't rub me the right way in, 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 in the sum of its parts. Worst film. Um, so, there are only three, six, seven, eight films that I rated less than a 50 this month, and there are only two films that I put in the, quote, awful category. And uh, so for a, long, for, for a wide amount of time earlier in the month, uh, the worst film was Aloha, which I gave a 24. And I think Aloha's pretty bad, but it was incredibly undercut by an absolute piece of garbage. <laughs> and that is the seminal work from Brian Robbins, Varsity Blues. Yeah, uh, so, man, Varsity Blues, I gave it a two, uh, so it satisfied the task of a film mentioned, watched, or referenced in the U.S. version of The Office, and, I mean, like, look, sports movies are gonna be cliche pretty much every time you go see them, and I don't... You know, that in and of itself does not make the film awful. What makes the film so bad is that on top of these gen generic sports cliches, the film is just flooded with these terrible messages and these just disgusting portrayals of all of these characters. And it's just very, very poorly written. Uh, you know, compared to something like Friday Night Lights, which I think... It, far exceeds Varsity Blues in every single sense of the word. You know, Varsity Blues is just, it's just garbage. Absolute garbage. 
two out of a hundred would not watch again worst film varsity blues uh funniest film this one uh you know i it started out as grandma i think lily tomlin is is very funny and grandma does a great job in that but it was then overtaken by another film and that film sort of carried the torch through to the end of the month and that is a fish called wanda and it's just a fish called wanda is just a comedy of errors it's constantly these people john cleese and kevin klein and jamie lee curtis are just consistently screwing up and getting in each other's way and there's misunderstandings and it, it has that sort of like uh, rat race or or type of feel to it where you have all these characters that are kind of working toward their own end and they keep intersecting and screwing each other over i think that's great i thought fish Girl wanda did it fantastically it's really well written and kevin klein especially stood out to me as as one of the best parts of that movie and uh you know one of the moments in this movie which was for a time the best scene uh front runner not any longer but the home invasion section uh where where john cleese breaks into his own house and kevin klein catches him and then attacks him thinking that john cleese is a thief that was that's such a great scene i i just i love it and just kevin klein's face just popping up at every moment to interrupt his sister slash girlfriend depending on who's around them i i found it really funny and so fish called wanda is my funniest film from this month's scavenger hunt most powerful film this was the this was led for a while by elephant uh now elephant i liked elephant i think it's a very interesting premise and style that gus van sant chose to present his film in and i think that the subject matter is very heavy and the simply the way that he angles the shots and displays all these kids it's a very powerful movie. It, it touches on a lot of very um, difficult subjects. But at the actual last minute, Elephant bowed out to My Life as a Zucchini. My Life as a Zucchini was the final film from this year's Oscars that I had not seen. So this is the first year in which I've seen every film nominated for an Oscar at it. At, at the show which i love i'm very excited by that and my life as a zucchini is a really great film and what's interesting is so the film deals with these foster children uh, many of which are are orphans and it sounds like you know going into this movie with the brief knowledge I had of it, I was really prepared for to, you know, just to be devastated. I thought I was going to be crying. I thought it was going to be just very emotional for me to watch. However, 
it was actually really cute and sweet and fun. And what, why it becomes the most powerful film is because there are so many moments in this movie, and it's a very short movie, it's only like a little over an hour long, but there are very many moments in this movie that are played for humor and played for laughs that are gut-wrenching. Um, you know, you get to learn these these six or seven kids, seven seven kids, who are staying at this foster home, and they each have you know we learn each of their stories pretty early on, and you know there's one girl who her mother was deported, and uh, every time a car pulls up to the foster home, she comes this girl comes running out the door, yell asking for mommy. And the way that the scene is displayed, it's played for such, it's played for humor. It's like, oh, there she goes again. And yet, it, underneath all of that, it's a, so painful. Like, oh shit. She just, she just keeps looking for her mom. She keeps waiting for her mom. That's not funny. That's heartbreaking. And yet, the film gets away with making it out to be a fun a funny moment and it's not disrespectful at all I don't I didn't feel that way I thought it was very it, it touched those moments perfectly and uh, I think you know it, it does that a lot throughout the film um, particularly the main character zucchini who keeps a kite with a picture he drew of his dad on it and he keeps a beer can that um, you know is was uh, that is connected to his mother his memory of his mother and uh, you know it just all these moments are so powerful and so important to this movie and so despite the light airy vibrant outer shell it is a dark and twisted and emotional heart inside and so most powerful film for me this month was my life as a zucchini most forgettable film. Uh, this was a difficult uh, uh, category. There were a lot of movies in the middling section that I thought just kind of drifted away moments after seeing them. Uh, you know, between whether it's Guy and Madeline on a park bench, Stakeland, Backcountry, The Gambler, like all these movies that I just they didn't connect with me and it was tough like finding like what do I remember this movie better than this one and so you know looking at the gambler well you know I can remember I can see Mark Wahlberg's character I can see Brie Larson's character so you know I can see John Goodman's character so I, I it's still in my memory in that sense or, or backcountry I remember the bear I remember um I can't think of the actress's name but she's on uh she was in Stick It <laughs> she's on a, a Canadian TV show now as a cop and uh, Deep Blue Sea is, is just hammy and cheesy and so I was able to remember that or uh, Stakeland is probably number two in this category it's very forgettable for me but I, I do kind of have glimpses of the aura and the atmosphere of that film that stick with me and, uh, and Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench at least was a musical, so I, I 
have you know I can see that again and and remember that so the most forgettable film of March for me was 30 days of night uh, 30 days of night I give a 38 and I just could not figure it out I you know it, it's you know, it has Josh Hartnett and Melissa George and Ben Foster and Danny Huston and Mark Boone Jr. And I like most of those names, but I just could not wrap my head around this movie. It just, I couldn't understand why anyone would like it. Uh, you know, I only give it a 38, so it's not awful. It's not the worst movie. So, I mean, I get that some people aren't going to dislike it, but for me, I just like, I don't think that there's anything of merit there that has at least at least that's lingered in my head you know it I, I don't know I, I I've forgotten most almost everything about it so most entertaining film uh, this is the first repeat winner of the night and I'm not gonna go through any preamble it's love exposure. For a four-hour film to hold my attention the entire time, it's it's incredibly entertaining. The film shifts tones consistently and at multiple points throughout the movie. We have sequences that are very religious-based. We have action sequences. We have revenge sequences, romance sequences, comic sequences. All of these things culminate in a film that makes no sense until you watch it. And it keeps your attention, and it's incredibly entertaining. So, Love Exposure, highly entertaining. I highly recommend Love Exposure. Best Performance. Um, man, this was tough. You know, Laurence Olivier is great in Hamlet. Uh, you know, you've got, um, I can't think of his name, from Bicycle Thieves. I can't find it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. Where is it? There it is. Um, Lamberto Maggiorani from Bicycle Thieves is great as well. Uh, Lily Tomlin is very good in Grandma. Kevin Klein from A Fish Called Wanda. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great performances in this in these movies. But the one that stuck out to me, which is kind of strange because it's a very subdued performance and it's not really a conventional form of, of acting that we know it to be today. Uh, but it's from Kind Hearts and Coronets and that's Dennis Price. Uh, this is an actor that I was unfamiliar with prior to seeing this movie. And yet now I'm just... I, I loved his performance in this. It's very strange and very unique. He doesn't have a huge personality. He's very subdued. He is very contained within himself. And he has this sort of aristocratic uh, mm, uh, aura about him. And so, you know, as he's going through this movie killing off members of his own family so that he can rise through the ranks to dukedom uh, yeah, you know he he just he keeps, he keeps his 
mind clear and he keeps himself steady on this path. I think it's, I think, you know, as great as Olivier is in Hamlet, as Hamlet, I think that Price is taking this sort of slightly above average material for his character in Kind Hearts and Cornets and completely knocking it out of the park. And I think that's a little bit more impressive than Olivier taking the incredible character of Hamlet and being incredible with it. So I give the slight edge to Dennis Price for Kind Hearts and Coronets. Best Direction. Uh, you know, it. Sion Sono for Love Exposure was very, very close to stealing this award. But I, I ended up having to keep, keep, keep it with Laurence Olivier for Hamlet. He didn't win performance, but I think that his direction is impeccable. Um, you know, I've, I haven't seen a ton of versions of Hamlet. Uh, you know, or man, I don't, I don't know that I've seen other versions. I, I know I've seen other versions. I just don't know what they are. You know, outside of you know, completely rearranged things like like the Lion King, for example. But I think that a Laurence Olivier just manages to capture the emotions and and atmosphere of Hamlet better than anybody else does in their respective movies. The sort of dark and dreariness uh, and, and the way that the camera completely envelops the actors when they're going through these terrible and trying times, you know, particularly for himself, you know, and he's great in this movie, both, both in front of and behind the camera. And I think that it's really difficult uh, for a director to have a have good shot composition on their own scenes, you know, you because he can't be outside of himself watching the scene as it's playing out. And I think that you do lose something in that lack of immediacy. And so that in and of itself really pushed him over the top for winning best director, best direction for this film, for Hamlet. And finally, uh, best scene. Now, so like I've mentioned, I mentioned before that uh, the the home invasion scene from Fish Called Wanda was here for a while. Uh, there was even there's even a scene from My Life as a Zucchini that made a late push but didn't quite overtake uh, the winner, the ultimate winner. And it, it just you know the finale for Bicycle Thieves is also fantastic, but I couldn't. You know, I had to go to the scene that filled me with the most emotion, consumed me with the most joy and happiness and uh, biggest reaction. And that's the, that's Love Exposure. So this is the third award for Love Exposure. And the scene is sort of toward the end. It's in the last mm, hour of the movie. And there's a moment, there's a scene where um, oh shit, what's the actual name? Hey, what's his actual name? Uh, you, dressed up as Miss Scorpion, invades uh, the place where they're holding Yoko. 
and that the entire scene kind of plays out like I don't know it's like some hybrid between Die Hard and a superhero movie and a samurai movie all rolled into one and I thought it was just so great it's so electric and you don't you know, despite the fact that this isn't really an action movie for the most part, you don't get taken out of it because of this huge action set piece and toward the end of this, like, romantic comedy movie, in a sense. And it was just, like, from the beginning, you know, he he invades the building, he climbs to the top, he finds Yoko, and the whole scene culminates with... First, an explosion, followed by a suicide, um, and and failure. So the whole thing culminates in failure. And I guess, oddly, at the same time, success, if you really want to look at it that way. And I think that that is kind of the epitome of this movie, you know. The, the entire journey for love exposure for the main characters in it is riddled with failure and, you know, big failures and small successes. And this is a huge representation of that. A lot of small successes as he climbs the floors, as he kills all these people, as he gets to his destination, as he makes it there, as he achieves presumably his goal and then it's all the rug is pulled out of out from under him at the very last second and huge failure. He he does not get what he wants and I think that this scene is a great representation for the movie and I thoroughly enjoyed it in in every possible sense. I loved this this scene. So, that is the superlatives for this month's scavenger hunt. And now, let's move on to the top 10 films from March in 2017. Okay, starting at number 10 with a 75, so, you know, very high start is the 1945 film which satisfied task number two, a film featuring a disease that you had at least once in your life or always have had. The disease in question is pneumonia, and the film in question is Mildred Pierce. Um, So Mildred Pierce, which is directed by Michael Curtis, Curtis, uh, starring Joan Crawford, Jack Carson, Zachary Scott, and Eve Arden, and Anne Blythe. Follows a mother, played by Joan Crawford, uh, trying to become an independent woman and failing to live up to her daughter's expectations. And Joan Crawford is is kind of the epitome of this movie. I don't think that makes any sense. Joan Crawford is the reason this movie is going to stick with me and has stuck with me since I saw it. I watched it right about the middle of the month on the 14th of March, and the only thing that I can really vividly pull out is Joan Crawford's performance. She 
delivers all of her dialogue beautifully. She is magnificent, and she is completely in control of this film. I, I went into this movie hoping to get some great female performances. I got one. I, I really thought that this would be a little bit more of a ensemble, in a sense. Uh, simply, or not necessarily an ensemble, but I thought that there'd be a lot more interplay between uh, Crawford and, and her character's daughter. But, in a, and, and there's some, to be fair, but I, I think that it kind of lacked the power that I was looking for. And even, you know, two days, you know, when I wrote the review that I put on Letterboxd, a lot of the specific details from that movie had already slipped away from me. And outside of Crawford's performance and a very vague understanding of the plot, you know, I don't really remember a lot from this movie. But if you really want to see... Uh, Joan Crawford at the height of her at the height of her power and giving an incredible performance this is the way this is the film this is a film that you will enjoy for sure so that's number 10 Mildred Pierce number 9 uh, already a, a winner of, a, of, this, of one superlative uh, and coming in ninth on the month is the 1988 film directed by Charles Crichton, satisfying task number eight, a film featuring an underwater animal in its title, A Fish Called Wanda. Uh, you know, this is the funniest film of the month for me, and I think that it is terrific. It's, I gave it a 76, uh, so it's actually tied with the film that came in eighth, but, you know, between Kevin Klein, Jamie Lee Curtis, and John Cleese, you, it's tough to find a better comedic ensemble. And underneath all of that, you've got a somewhat tight plot that at least carries things through to the end. Um, you've got a finale that... Um, I don't know if I'd call it finale, but there's a sequence toward the end of the movie that I thought was just beautiful. And, and even though I could see it coming it still played out really well because Kevin Klein and John Cleese sell their parts perfectly during that sequence. Uh, yeah, I, I think... I, I don't know why I was so trepidatious to watch this movie. It's so fun. It's so good. It's very good. So that's number nine, A Fish Called Wanda. Number eight, a film that I haven't mentioned yet, in this episode, and that is the Oscar-nominated documentary from 2003, Capturing the Freedmans, also with a 76. Capturing the Freedmans um, was Oscar-nominated but did not win for Best Documentary that year, and so it satisfies task number 13. And it, man, it is just... In, in the way that uh, Fish Called Wanda is a comedy of errors, Capturing the Freemans is kind of a comedy of um, mistakes. And I... I, I, hmm, I guess I want to... To clarify what I mean by that, in the sense that mistakes mean that 
everybody involved in this movie. So, you know, there's a lot of interviews, there's a lot of talking heads, there's a lot of reporter reporting going on about the, the events that took place uh, regarding the Freedmans. You know, the the every single person in this movie becomes untrustworthy and you know is is presented as having such a skewed version of the truth that there can't possibly like no one can possibly be telling the full truth in this movie it isn't possible not even the film itself and i think that is inherently devastating I, I, you know i i'm watching this and like okay look we've got this guy being uh, accused of you know sexual involvement uh, uh, with minors with his students and then you've got the guy's son who's also being accused of the same thing of aiding him and then you have all these different witnesses who are either victims who are relatives of victims who are uh, who saw things happen, who know the defendant, uh, who know the perpetrators, who know whatever. And this one guy is telling you, like, oh, it basically happened in the middle of class. And the other person is telling you, like, he would never hurt a fly. And the other person is telling you, well, he did it to me all the time. And another person is telling you, well, he made me help him do it to somebody else. And another person is telling you, well, there's no evidence that he did anything and you just you can't rationalize this at all and it's it's so skew so far convoluted that to even try to piece together the overlap of any of the stories becomes more of a headache than like inception or 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 memento or um you know any sort of mind-bending or, or like primer you know, it would be easier, it's easier to figure out what's going on in Primer than it is to figure out the truth of this, this case based on the film Capturing the Freedmans. And I think the tagline, who do you believe? Or who will you believe? Uh, the poster says one, the tagline says another. But that is exactly this movie. Like, can you believe anybody? And... You know, I because I, I, I don't believe that it is sort of, uh, I don't think it's as simple as, well, this person's probably the most correct, so let's believe him. No, I don't, I don't think it's like that. You have to sort of piece together. It's like a puzzle, and each person has a different piece. And yeah, if you had all the pieces, you might be able to form the full picture, but you don't know who, <laughs> like, you don't even know which pieces go to this puzzle that they're giving you and I think that the confusion and in and 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 inability to separate things from each other is why this film is so profound and and so representative of the problems that we have in our justice system so that's capturing the Freedmans with a 76 number eight number seven perhaps controversially this high is beauty and the beast um with a 77 beauty and the beast uh satisfies task number six which is a film in theaters so i watched it 
uh, earlier in the, about halfway through the month. I went with a friend. We had a great time. It's, you know, definitely not as good as the, the animated film. It, it pales in comparison. But for what it is, without, you know, ruining its score simply because it fails to live up to the the animated version, it is fun for what is being presented. It has the music, which is entertaining, as well as a couple of new songs with a few new lyrics to the old songs. Uh, some of the characters have a little have a different character arc um, for better, in most cases. Kevin Klein is brill is perfect as the father character to Belle, and the CGI is solid. It's not awful. It's not, you know, it's not Jungle Book. It's just it's good. It's good. And you know, I've already talked about Beauty and the Beast. I've already had an episode about it, and so I don't have to go into too much more detail here. But I just thought it was quite decent and very enjoyable. I had a lot of fun. And so that's a 77, Beauty and the Beast, number seven. Number six, uh, the, with an, so we're jumping into the 80s now already, with an 82, this is the best picture winner from 1948, Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. Uh, Olivier, who won Best Director for the month from this film, uh, you know, won Best Actor at the Oscars for it, and the film won Best Picture. And it's two and a half hours long, which I think is just about the right length for for a film uh, based on Hamlet. And I, I, other than the fact that. Olivier is a little older than you expect the age you expect Hamlet to be. The film does everything incredibly well. It's not the best picture for me from that year, unfortunately. Uh, 19. You know, I would, you know, I don't think it's as good as Johnny Belinda or The Red Shoes. Um, but. It is in an, in its own right. It is a great film with some great acting, and it's a very minimalistic uh, world that they're living in. Uh, you know, that's not a lot of you know. You know, it's a lot of stage and and set sets that they were designing, but the actual things in the world are very sparse and. You know, it's stripped very bare and reduced to mostly just a performance-based film. And Olivier excels at that. Gene Simmons, John Laurie, Esmond Knight, Anthony Quayle, they all do such a fantastic job with uh, this material. And credit goes to Olivier for, for putting it all together. So Hamlet, number six with an 82. Number five, another film that I have not, the, the other, only other film on the top ten that I have not mentioned yet, uh, with an 86, um, but that did not win a single superlative, is a film from Zach's top 200 from the Cinerealist, and that is the 1962 film, directed by Louis Buñuel, The Exterminating Angel. 
so the exterminating angel deals with a dinner party that suddenly finds that they cannot leave the room. It, it's very simple. I It gave me a lot of sort of uh, Russian vibes for me. It felt so, like something I might read in Russian literature in simply the sort of premise and way it was presented. Uh, it is a Mexican film, and it's just so weird and I, I loved that aspect to it and you know on the surface it doesn't feel like this is a premise or film that would make much sense you know how are you going to keep these people in this room why can't they leave where like there's going to be all these questions about what invisible force field is surrounding them and yet when you're watching it you don't really care about that stuff you know you accept it because it's presented so simply and so well thought out that you just you get what's going on and you've got people outside of the building you know as they realize like oh man these guys have been in there for like three or four days now and you know they break open a pipe in the wall so that they can get something to drink and everybody is just constantly on edge and the resolution uh, to how they can get out of the room, I thought was perfect. It makes about as much sense as why they're trapped in there in the first place. And, you know, I think, you know, rather than something like, say, you know, destroying, demolishing the house around them or burning it down, I think that their solution, the solution that is given is far more fitting with the film that we've been watching up until that point. So, The Exterminating Angel, I really liked it, and I think it's great. Uh, so I gave it an 86, and that's number five uh, for this month. Number four, the last film that I saw from this month's scavenger hunt uh, is My Life as a Zucchini, uh, and I gave it an 87. Uh, My Life as a Zucchini, or... Uh, as they might say, Ma Vie de Courgette is heartbreaking and hilarious. And, you know, I talked about it as the most powerful film already. There's one scene that sort of drops the floor out from underneath you. The, the kids all go on this sort of vacation to the mountains. They're playing in the snow. And... Uh, after sledding, going sledding and like they were building snowmen, they're all kind of grouped together. And one of them points out that there's a mother and her son nearby and how pretty the mother is. And the, then the camera pans over to the mother and her kid who are playing. And then they realize that all these kids are looking at them. And the camera pans back and you just, it's this, it's this shot that's on Letterboxd at the top when you look on when you look at the my life as a zucchini page it's just all seven of these kids staring at the camera staring at the family at this mother and the the sound drops out of this shot and it lingers on it for about 10 15 seconds and it's devastating because you're looking at all these kids and none of them has their own mother 
none of them has a parent. They are all foster children. Many of them are orphans. Some of them, uh, you know, were beaten. Some of them um, did terrible things. Uh, you know, some of them had to endure off even worse things. And you just, you, it, it just kills you to say like, shit, like these kids are nine, 10, 11 years old, give or take. And they just, there's nothing they can do about it. They are stuck as far as we know, in this new life that they are living. And yet here they are, staring at this other kid who has a mother, who will be, you know, live you know, living, quote unquote, a more a, a more full life than any of these guys will, because the fact that their family, that this kid's family isn't being broken up in the same way. And they each realize it in a different way. They each have a different perspective on why they're at this foster care home. They're each sort of imagining themselves in the place of this kid and being there with their mom. And I was just heartbroken in that scene. And that's, for the most part, that's the one scene in the movie that really doesn't try to brighten up the moment. Because most of the other mo- scenes that deal with tough, tough emotions and tough decisions and tough uh, sentiments, they are vibrant and they do kind of play you for laughs at the same time, but not that moment, not at all. So that's number four, My Life as a Zucchini in 87. Number three... Uh, which didn't win any of the superlatives, but came very close on many occasions, is the 1948 film uh, La Drie de Bicyclette, Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves. And, you know, this is a film that is widely talked about, widely respected, considered one of the best films of all time. It's a masterpiece. I give it an 88, which does not put it in masterpiece range for me, but is a great film nonetheless. And for me, I went into this movie, I wanted to love it. I wanted it to be a great film. And uh, the first maybe half an hour, it was a movie about characters in a situation and a time of and a time period that I just could not connect to. Um, Despite the fact that I generally use a bike for my main method of transportation, I can't imagine life being that as hard as it is for these characters. I'm not at all part of a, you know, a world war economy. I don't live in a country where, um, you know, you, finding a job for two days is good you know, like if I, if I had to find a new job every two days, I'd go insane. I, I don't know that I could pull, do that. And yet that was life for these people at this time. And it was really tough for me to, to get into the heads of these characters. And finally, once the, 
the bike is stolen. Um, and Antonio spends the rest of the film tracking down the thief, trying to find his bicycle. I, that's, as that sequence progressed, I finally became more and more in touch and connected to this movie. Um, until finally, you know, it all culminated in this finale that was picture perfect. I think this finale by itself was worth 10 points on my scale. Because uh, um, it, it just, it's so moving and so incredibly powerful. As you see Antonio, he sends his son home and you know what he's doing. He's walking back and forth. He sees the bike out of the corner of his eye. The scene is shot so incredibly well. And then he walks to the bike and he walks past the bike and he hesitates for a half a second and then he grabs it. And he has become the thing that he has spent this entire movie chasing and, and fighting against. And it, it's just, it's such an incredible moment. And something so simple as a bike thief is, is turned into something so powerful. And I think that that's incredibly commendable. And Vittorio De Sica does a fantastic job with creating this masterpiece so that's bicycle thieves and 88 number three number two moving into the 90s with a 91 is kind hearts and coronets um so vincent price not not vincent price dennis price winning best actor uh, best performance in a film from this month's scavenger hunt leads the way in this film that is very funny and i mean he's a serial killer and it's crazy that like this is so easy and yet you know as easy as the film presents all these murders to be i never was taken out of it plus on top of that you have alec guinness playing like eight different characters who all die (laughs) (laughs) who <laughs> all get killed by Dennis Price. <laughs> There's a scene where you just pan through this this uh, in this church, all of these various Alec Guinnesses, Guinnessai, Guinnai, Guinnessai, um, in various dress, and he just you have Dennis Price like this is so and so, this is so and so, this is so and so, and these are all the people that I need to kill, and they're all Alec Guinness, and I thought that was brilliant, so brilliant. And this is just a very fun, dark, dark, dark comedy. And I think Dennis Price in in the lead role is what ties the film all together. I think without him, he the thing everything sorts of sort of falls apart. And so I was very impressed with his ability to keep things in perspective. And uh, so Kind Hearts and Coronets. With a 91. With a 91. Number two. And finally, in case you didn't know, number one is Love Exposure. I gave Love Exposure a 97, which puts it in my top 100. I adore this film. I fell in love with it. I would rewatch it again because I want, us, want other people to see it. 
And, you know, this isn't... It, it's basically an anime. Turned live action and all joined together. You know, this is like 10 episodes of an anime back to back to back to back to back. But live action. From you, t like, taking panty shots of girls on the street to Yoko uh, falling in love with Miss Scorpion to, um, oh, what's her name? To Kaori, 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 uh, and her silly parrot, parakeet, and being, like, a serial killer, almost, and, like, all these various things, from incredibly graphic gore and blood, genital mutilation, you've got cross-dressing and porn and religion and everything you could possibly imagine in this movie and for it to have any semblance of cohesion is a miracle and yet not only does it have that but it's vastly superior than films that only focus on like a portion of what this film touches on and it just Man, it was just such a thrill ride from beginning to end. <laughs> There's so much to enjoy about it. And just like thinking back on various aspects and various moments, it just, it floors me. It floors me completely. I, I think it's brilliant and I highly recommend that you take a look because it will hook get its hooks buried deep inside of you and it will not let you go until that final scene that final shot which is just perfect it's just the, the great one of the best final shots i've seen in a long time that's love exposure with a 97 number one best film of the month for me Whew. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This has been the March Scavenger Hunt Review Top 10 slash Superlatives. Uh, I appreciate you listening and taking the time. If you have any comments, concerns, questions, or answers, you may send them to circleoffilm at gmail.com. If you are interested in other episodes or learning more about me or the spreadsheet that I reference so frequently, uh, or if you want a comprehensive list of the superlative winners uh, going back to when I first started the podcast, uh, you can find that stuff at circleoffilm.com. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same I know she'll never leave me Even as she fades from view So long, farewell, I'll be to say that you In the name of love One night in the name of love So long, farewell, oh what I'll be to say Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute